I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And on today's episode, we shed needed constitutional light on the Mueller report. We focus mainly on the question of obstruction of justice. Uh, does the special counsel's findings establish obstruction? Can the president be guilty of obstruction? And what are the statutory and constitutional defenses? Joining us to unpack these crucial questions are two of America's leading constitutional scholars, experts on obstruction of justice and the Constitution and friends of the We the People podcast. Mary McCord is senior litigator at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. She was acting assistant attorney general for national security at the U.S. Department of Justice from 2016 to 2017 and also worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. Mary, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Josh Blackman is an associate professor of law at the South Texas College of Law in Houston. He is author of two critically acclaimed books on Obamacare and has twice testified before the House Judiciary Committee on Executive Power and the Constitution. He's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, the founder and president of the Harlan Institute, and blogs at joshblackman.com. Josh, it is great to have you back on the show. It's great to be back, Jeff. Thank you. Mary, let's dive in with the question of what the Mueller report says about obstruction of justice. There are a bunch of different uh, alleged incidents. Uh, take us through what the legal elements of obstruction are, uh, what state of mind you have to prove in order to establish it, and, and maybe choose one or two examples from the Mueller report and describe what Mueller did and didn't conclude about obstruction. Sure. So obstruction of justice, there are a number of different statutes in the federal criminal code that apply to different types of obstructive conduct, uh, from tampering with witnesses, destroying documents, um, and uh, other, you know, um, direct influences on documentary evidence and, think, and witnesses. And then there are more general catch-all provisions that apply to other types of obstructive conduct that interferes with the due administration of justice. But one in common to all of these statutes uh, are, are really three elements. One is that there is an obstructive act. This is something that is done by the person who seeks to obstruct that could have as its result the, an actual impact on the administration of justice. Second is a nexus between this obstructive act and an actual effect on a proceeding, either an actual ongoing proceeding or a contemplated and expected proceeding. And by nexus, I mean a link. And the Supreme Court has interpreted this somewhat narrowly to mean th that an impact, an effect, an obstructive effect on the proceeding is something that would be a natural and probable consequence. Uh, natural and probable consequence of the obstructive act. So it can't be so attenuated, for example, that you really can't draw that link. And then the third thing, importantly, and goes directly to your question, is it must be done with corrupt intent. And that means wrongful intent, knowingly wrongful intent, intent to obstruct, not by accident. And so this comes into play a lot, and I'm sure we'll get to this later in the podcast, when you're talking about the president um, exercising authorities that are granted to him by the Constitution that he could do lawfully, such as fire the FBI director, uh, might look very different when they're done with this corrupt intent to actually obstruct a proceeding. And without judging whether that's established in this report or not, it's just a way to sort of show how it is possible, at least under the theories advocated by the Mueller report, to have um, there be an obstructive act, an obstruction of justice, even when undertaking uh, something that's within your authority to do. But what you couldn't have is um, someone taking a lawful act, uh, doing a lawful act that ends up having the effect of obstructing justice, even when there was no intent for it to do so, no corrupt intent. It just sort of happened, but it wasn't the plan of the person who engaged in the act. So in the Mueller report, the special counsel looked at 10 different um, event scenarios 
and applied this, you know, first set forth the facts and applied the analysis to these 10 different event scenarios. And those start with, um, those start with the conduct uh, of the president in, uh, toward talking with Director Comey about maybe looking the other way and not pursuing any kind of investigation or charges against Michael Flynn. And then they call all they 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 include different uh, scenarios of the president's you know termination of Comey, his efforts to get uh, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who had recused himself from the Russia investigation, the president's efforts to get Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself in order to protect the president. And he uses many different methods of doing this. Um, they go through uh, efforts of uh, the president to um, influence statements made to the public and to the press with respect to the Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016. Um, and and finally, um, well, I shouldn't say finally because there's ten of these. Uh, and through efforts to have Don McGahn deny that the president had ordered Don McGahn to have the special counsel removed, um, and then finally his conduct toward people like Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, and someone else who is redacted from this report because of an ongoing investigation. So they span a great um, variety of scenarios, but all really related to, um, or almost all related to his efforts to try to um, remove the special counsel, have the attorney general remove the special counsel or take control of the Russia investigation and have some sort of impact, obstructive impact on the Russia investigation. For each one of these, I will say there are there is at least one area, and this is the area with preventing disclosure of, of um, real factual evidence about the Trump Tower meeting. This is the only area that I saw where the special counsel really does seem to suggest the evidence would be insufficient to prove all three of those prongs that I mentioned, obstructive act, nexus to a proceeding or anticipated proceeding, and corrupt intent. And that's primarily because the president was not suggesting, according to the facts, and every time I'm stating something, I'm, I'm stating the facts that are in this report. According to the facts in this report, um, the president's conduct there was not was not directed toward preventing um, the facts from getting the information about the meeting to get to Congress. It was, or to Mr. Mueller, it was about preventing them from getting out to the American people through the press. And so I think the Mueller team rightly said, well, you know, can't obstruct the press, that's not a crime. Um, and so there wouldn't be sufficient evidence there. For all of the other scenarios, um, the, the special counsel will indicate with respect to each of those elements, either that there was some evidence, evidence or substantial evidence, um, and a few other descriptive terms um, with respect to each element. And so the reader can kind of get a pretty good sense when reading the report about which of the particular scenarios the Mueller team thought were most likely to actually uh, meet the elements of obstruction of justice. And one in particular that stands out is the efforts to have Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, deny that the president had ordered him to have the special counsel removed. That's one that there's a substantial evidence, according to um, the Mueller report, of, of each of the three evidence, uh, elements. So, Josh, let's set aside the constitutional defenses for a moment. And I, I just want to ask this basic question. Take, take the example that Mary ended with, uh, the president uh, getting asking Don McGahn to deny that the president had asked him to remove the special counsel. Uh, just running through the elements, had he fired the special counsel, that would have had an obstructive effect on an ongoing or contemplated proceeding. Uh, there was a nexus between the act and the contemplated proceeding. What, what is the non-corrupt intent that could be alleged? Uh, the, uh, the defenders of the president have noted a desire to avoid the fact that the investigation would take up a lot of his time or maybe to focus on foreign policy and avoid embarrassment. But would that – if this were an ordinary defendant and not the president, would those two alternative explanations count as non-corrupt intent or is the mere desire to interfere with the investigation by attempting to fire the special prosecutor enough in an ordinary obstruction investigation to establish corrupt intent? Well, thanks again for having me, Jeff. Let's pretend this is not President Trump. Let's pretend it's Governor Trump. 
And Governor Trump wanted to fire his attorney general, the state attorney general he appointed. And uh, he asked his deputy to perhaps fire him or to have him removed. Uh, And the deputy said, I refuse to do it. If you make me do this, I'll resign. And then if the president, sorry, the governor had said, okay, fine. uh, Now I need you to lie about uh, what I told you to do. Um, I think in the normal course of things, that would probably be an obstruction of justice. A query whether uh, Trump was asking his advice or giving an order, and I think there there's a little bit of factual ambiguity here, but we'll just we'll just assume it for the moment. Okay, now substitute Governor Trump for President Trump, and I think that the uh, the analysis changes a bit. Um, the Constitution gives one person and one person alone certain powers. Uh, Jeff, if I give you a pardon, it has no effect. If I sign a treaty, it has no effect. If I nominate a judge, Lord help us, it has no effect. Uh, the president does by virtue of his office. And I think he has certain uh, uh, privileges that come along with this. Uh, one of these derives from the take care clause, uh, which says the president must take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And this is not the president's personal duty. This is a responsibility to ensure those below him are faithfully executing the laws of the land. Um, and this provision has, has been derived to uh, give the president supervisory powers to supervise the executive branch. Um, the question then becomes, uh, does the president's powers to supervise the executive branch uh, come from the Constitution? And if they do, then a mere statute cannot override them. Uh, this is probably bleeding to your next question, but I'll jump the gun just a tad. Uh, Robert Mueller suggested that if the president acts with a corrupt intent, then that's an action the Constitution does not give him the power to take. That is, the requirement to faithfully execute the laws is is, is inconsistent with a corrupt intent. Um, that might be true. It might not be. I don't know. That's a theory of constitutional law that no court has ever addressed. Uh, but I think the more simple question is that Mueller hasn't established uh, uh, why the, 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 um, uh, the obstruction statute would apply to the president in the first place. And I'll start with a simple principle uh, called the clear statement rule. Um, there's, a, there's an aspect of uh, executive branch practice and courts, uh, uh, judicial practice, that unless a statute expressly applies to the president, uh, the court simply assumed Congress didn't intend to restrict the president's power, um, unless uh, you know, context indicates otherwise. Um, applying this, the obstruction statute to the president raises a number of constitutional questions which Mueller, uh, I don't think, gave the attention they deserve. Uh, specifically, how do you reconcile the president's constitutional duty to supervise the executive branch with uh, uh, the sorts of actions he took about instructing his subordinates? Um, does a mere corrupt intent mean that the president is now disempowered from taking that action? Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. It, no courts ever addressed this. And I think these are, these are very tough constitutional questions to, uh, to, to, to grapple with. Do want to delve in on the uh, very important uh, argument you've just made that the obstruction statute may not apply to the president. But before we do that, I do want to take another beat on the on the factual uh, question. Mary Josh said that if President Trump had been Governor Trump, he thinks that this might indeed have been a relatively easy case of obstruction. And I just want to see whether or not you agree about that. If President Trump tried to get McGahn to fire that special counsel because he was afraid that the counsel's investigation would embarrass him or would take up his time or even would make him look bad in the eyes of Russia. Would that qualify as corrupt intent under ordinary obstruction statutes or is there an alternative non-corrupt motive that he could invoke in his defense? So if the question is whether even though his intent is to obstruct an, uh, an an ongoing investigation, because of course at the time we're talking about his efforts to have Don McGahn fire the special counsel, and then his efforts to have Don McGahn lie about firing the special counsel to to the special counsel. Um, there's no question, or it seems to be a little question, that 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 those were efforts to obstruct that investigation. And so, if the question is, is there some sort of higher intent that even if you're obstructing, but if you're obstructing for some higher purpose, would that make it be okay? Um, you know, I'm not aware of any case, certainly, that supports that. I suppose in an extreme example, you would always have, a, you know, the defense of duress, like I was choosing between two evils and, you know, some terrible, you know, war was going to result if uh, I didn't thwart this special counsel investigation. And so I had to 
pick between two bad options, and so therefore I went with obstruction. Um, I could imagine that's something that, you know, a person could litigate in a very extreme example. But I don't think any of this of the uh, hypotheticals you just suggested about being concerned that this was going to interfere with his um, credibility on the world stage, his ability to conduct foreign policy, his ability to govern domestically and be respected. Um, those none of those, I think, would raise to that level of sort of duress that would that would uh, provide a defense to the actual uh, corrupt intent to obstruct the proceeding. Just to establish where we are at this point, Josh, do you agree with Mary that if it were Governor Trump rather than President Trump, there would be a strong case for obstruction of justice when it came to the attempted firing of the special counsel through Don McGahn? And is it your position that the reason the president shouldn't be impeached and shouldn't be indicted after leaving office is because the obstruction statutes don't apply to the president in the exercise of his Article II duties? And uh, to what degree does this turn on our accepting your position, which is that of the attorney general, and rejecting the constitutional analysis of the special counsel who came to the opposite conclusion? Well, Jeff, there are several parts to that question. I'll try to take them one at a time. Um, first, uh, is there enough to charge Governor Trump uh, based on the evidence of the Mueller report? Um, probably. Is there enough to convict? Um, I think I would be very careful uh, to determine whether, in fact, the president was asking for advice, like, can I fire him, or was this an order to fire him? I think lots of presidents ask their White House counsels to do really stupid things all the time. Right? I think lots of governors ask their deputies to do really stupid things all the time. And it's very often the case that the deputy talks them off the ledge, says, no, this is stupid. Um, if we were to start criminalizing every instance where a government official uh, uh, wants to do something stupid and is talked out of, I think that would have a serious chilling effect on government. But I'll, I'll stipulate to the facts that I think if, if the facts are exactly as you suggest, uh, then I think this criminal act uh, uh, could lead to an indictment. I don't know about a conviction, but at least, at least could lead to an indictment after the fact. Okay, so now the, the next part of your question asks then about the constitutional um, element. Uh, and I think we need to think very carefully about the president's uh, defenses. The president has certain defenses that no one else uh, um, uh, 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 has in, in the world. Um, specifically, uh, he has powers over foreign policy and powers over the supervision of the executive branch. Um, and I want to focus on a different um, obstructive incident, not the McGahn one. Uh, but the initial decision to fire James Comey. Um, shortly after uh, Comey was fired, the FBI director, um, the White House released some statements saying that the FBI investigation into his campaign was putting a cloud over his administration and was hampering his ability to engage in foreign affairs with Russia and other countries. Um, and even when Trump was interviewed on various affairs, uh, various interviews, he said, uh, this, FBI inter this FBI investigation is hampering my ability to, to govern foreign policy. Uh, and I can give you incident after incident where the president's trying to talk to foreign leaders and all the press wants to talk about is Russia and in collusion, everything else. Um, I think there's an argument that if the president determines uh, uh, that one of the reasons why he wants to fire Comey is to improve his foreign affairs, that's one justification. And let's say he has another justification because he doesn't want the special counsel to go after his own people. Oh, that might be corrupt. Uh, what do we do when you have mixed motives? You have one corrupt intent and one intent that's compelled by the Constitution. Um, we don't have any case law telling us how to handle mixed motives for a constitutional defense uh, in the executive power context. That's, that's a fairly novel scheme. Um, I would like Mueller to at least address those points, uh, which is why I think it's enough to make the allegation uh, uh, and it's not very difficult to indict. It's a fairly low bar uh, to indict someone, uh, but a conviction I don't think could be appropriate in this case, assuming the president's now out of office, uh, assuming the statute of limitation doesn't run. Mary, did uh, the Attorney General uh, William Barr say in his Mar March 24th letter to Congress that his uh, conclusion that uh, the charges did not rise to the level of indictable offenses uh, was not reliant on his theory that the president was immune from the obstruction uh, statutes? And to what degree does the president's defense hinge on his alleged immunity from the obstruction statute? So in his four-page letter, Attorney General Barr 
does not really address um, the statutory or constitutional defenses that he had put in his 19-page unsolicited um, letter to the Deputy Attorney General, who was at that time the Acting Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, from the previous year before he became the Attorney General. He instead, uh, basically, you know, in brief form, because it's a short letter, said that he, along with um, Rod Rosenstein, who'd been involved, of course, in supervising the investigation, uh, very since very close to its inception, and certainly since the special counsel was appointed, because it was Rod Rosenstein who appointed him, that he and Rod had concluded that the evidence was not sufficient to establish each of the elements beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, in his press conference last Thursday morning, Mr. Barr claimed that he, although he disagreed with Mr. Mueller on some of the legal um, theories, and I think partly that is a reference to uh, his own theories about whether statutorily or as a matter of constitutional law, the president could be um, indicted or found guilty of a, of a crime of obstruction of justice. But Attorney General Barr said at that press conference that uh, even though he disagreed with Mueller on some of those points, he had made his conclusion based on the um, on accepting those legal theories and applying the three elements to the facts and, and had found that they were insufficient. Josh, is, is that a surprising conclusion, G- given your uh, opposite conclusion that the facts, at least for some of the elements, did arguably rise to the level of obstruction, at least enough for indictment? Uh, how do you imagine that the attorney general on the facts uh, reach the opposite conclusion? It's difficult for me to comment on um, Barr's uh, justification. Um, I watched the same speech that uh, Mary did, and then I, I, I read uh, the, the Mueller report. And in a number of instances, the evidence did seem to suggest that um, uh, were this Governor Trump, an indictment would be proper. Um I, I really I don't know how Barr reached the conclusions he did. Uh, what I will offer is that uh, prosecutorial discretion is something that's very specific. And there may have been other factors beyond the constitutional defenses I raised that enter into Mueller's thinking. Uh, but we don't have a full accounting of his thinking. Uh, you know, he will testify before Congress and maybe he will give some more insights into uh, uh, his approach. Um I think at a minimum, Mueller should, if he disagrees with, I'm sorry, Barr should, if he disagrees with Mueller's theory, should establish a DOJ policy for the future. Maybe ask OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, for an opinion um, stating that the obstruction statute can apply to the president, and that will prevent these sorts of things from going forward in the future. Uh, But based on the facts presented in the Mueller report and putting aside the constitutional defenses, I don't know how to explain the the AG's decision beyond uh, other prosecutorial discretion factors that are not based on the on the facts themselves. You know, the converse question to you: if, if the facts are as relatively strong or substantial as you suggested, why didn't Mueller reach a conclusion? And was his reluctance to reach a conclusion? reflecting his belief that because the president can't be indicted while he's in office, it wasn't appropriate for him to reach a conclusion one way or another? Or is there some other explanation? Uh, No, I think it's pretty clear from page one of the introduction to volume two of the report, which is the volume that goes through and explains the obstruction of justice investigation. uh, Mr. Mueller makes it clear that because of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that concludes that the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions in violation of the separation of powers, uh, that that was the motivating reason behind the special counsel not reaching a conclusion about whether the president had whether the president's actions met all the elements of the crime of obstruction of justice. He says specifically, given his role as an attorney in the Department of Justice, um, he accepted the OLC's legal conclusion for the purposes of exercising prosecutorial jurisdiction. He does not use the word discretion. He uses the word jurisdiction, which to 
the lawyers listening means, do I have the authority to prosecute in this area? And he read the OLC opinion properly, I believe, it's a proper reading of that opinion, that he can't return an indictment. And therefore, he then went on to say, because we cannot return indictment under other Justice Department um, guidelines, it is inappropriate then to say publicly that someone has committed a crime when you're not able to indict them and not able to have the crime adjudicated in a court of law, in a neutral forum with a neutral judge where the person accused of the crime has the opportunity to put on evidence in his own defense, et cetera. And so based on those DOJ guidelines and prudential considerations of fairness, given that he wasn't able to return an indictment, he was also not going to reach a conclusion about whether a crime had taken place. He does go on, however, to be clear that um, he also doesn't want to, uh, uh, he, he also thought it was important to put all the evidence in this one place, in this one report, all the facts known and accumulated by his team um, so that uh, it could be preserved while memories were fresh and documentary materials were available. And certainly this means this is all available for use either by a future prosecutor because of uh, the OLC's opinion only applies while the president is a sitting president and it, and it, it, it uh, provides no, um, uh, no prohibition on charging a, a um a no longer sitting president with a crime, even based on crimes that occurred previously. And it also provides uh, all the facts out there, certainly for Congress to take any action that Congress would would think appropriate. So Josh, we have at this point in the really interesting discussion, uh, some consensus by both of you that if it were governor, not President Trump, there'd be at least a substantial case for obstruction on some of the charges that uh, Mueller did not reach a conclusion because of his view that the president uh, could not be indicted and therefore it wasn't appropriate for him to make a recommendation. We're not quite sure why the attorney general reached the opposite conclusion. What should Congress do next? Um, should it first establish a finding about whether uh, an ordinary defendant like Governor Trump could be indicted or, or whether the president could be indicted after leaving office and then consider the constitutional uh, defenses? And, and and after the president leaves office, could and should a future prosecutor uh, consider these facts uninhibited by the constitutional defenses? Well, there, there are two issues here, right? What should Congress do and what should a future attorney general do? And let, let's start with Congress. Um, Congress has tools at its disposal. Um, the House of Representatives can initiate impeachment proceedings and impeachment investigation uh, that could lead to the drafting of articles of impeachment and which they can vote on articles of impeachment. Um, to be perfectly frank, we didn't need a 500-page Mueller report to file articles of impeachment. Um, almost every act mentioned in the report was done in public in plain view. Um, there were a couple of things that you know we didn't know about which weren't too significant, but the the bulk of it, we, we knew what happened. There wasn't any any surprise. So in theory, at least, Congress could have initiated impeachment articles in 2017, or at least when the House flipped over um, last year. Um, I, I, I pause here to note, um, it's not entirely clear to me if Congress can impeach the president for taking action that the Constitution gives him the power to take. And I'll use a very uh, famous example that, that I'm sure uh, your listeners are familiar with, which is the impeachment of Andrew Johnson going back to the 1860s. Um, at the time, Congress had enacted a statute uh, that said that the president, Johnson, couldn't fire the Secretary of War, who was a Lincoln holdover, uh, without getting the consent of the Senate. It was basically a restraint on the president's removal power. Um, Johnson fired the guy anyway. And that was a key reason why uh, the articles of impeachment were filed against President Johnson. The argument was that he violated what's called the Tenure of Office Act, which imposed this restriction on removal. And let's put aside the final verdict. We know history tells us that Johnson was acquitted by a single vote, the profile and courage. But if indeed the president had the power to remove um, uh, the Secretary of War, then he didn't violate the Constitution. The statute is preempted. Um, and he did nothing wrong. 
Uh, if Congress could impose that restriction on the president, then indeed he violated the law and he was impeachable. Um, who was right, Johnson or, or, or the Congress, uh, the Republicans in Congress? Um, history tells us that the Supreme Court later held that Johnson was right, that he had the power to fire the guy. Now, I don't think the Supreme Court uh, uh, precedents are binding for uh, the Senate. I think the Senate sits as a court. They have a trial. And I think members of the Senate can reach their own constitutional judgments. But what I would posit that if the president has a constitutional defense against indictment, he would also have a constitutional defense against impeachment. Uh, I think that defense applies to some of the charges uh, in, in the Mueller report, but not others. Um, so I think Congress would still have to contend with these constitutional defenses, at least for some of the counts, uh, uh, regardless of what happens for indictment. Now, the second thing you asked about, Jeff, was could a future attorney general decide to indict the president? Um, and here the statute limitations plays an important role. Uh, a lot of this obstructive conduct or alleged obstructive conduct occurred in 2017. Uh, I believe the statute limitations five years, which runs out in 2022. Uh, so if President Trump loses re-election, uh, the next president could decide to uh, charge the president with a crime. And there's no prohibition of indicting a former sitting president. I don't think there's any 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 separation of powers problem there. He's out of office. Uh, he still have the constitutional defenses, but they could indict him. Uh, now, if President Trump is re-elected, which you know, is a possibility, we don't know, uh, then the five-year statute would run out. Uh, there may be some way to toll the statute limitations equitably. I'm, I'm not confident that any prosecutor would risk this. I think there's a serious cost to indicting a former president. It's very Latin, America-y, uh, Latin America-ish. Um, but a lot, I think, turns on whether Trump wins re-election. So, Mary, it sounds like a lot does turn on the constitutional defenses, as Josh uh, persuasively says. The Supreme Court later found that the uh, claim that President Johnson violated the Tenure of Office Act was inconsistent with the Constitution. So what do you make of the constitutional defense that Josh and the Attorney General have laid out, namely that the president cannot be uh, liable for obstruction when he exercises one of his Article II powers? Well, you know, I think that um, what I'm, I guess I'm persuaded by the analysis of the Mueller team on the constitutional defenses that um, there's not any offense to separation of powers when Congress uh, legislates a crime that is applied to the president that only applies to corrupt conduct, that art his Article II authority does not and should not extend to conduct that while he has the authority to take a particular action, such as firing the special counsel, or well, actually that, that raises a different question about whether the special counsel is an inferior officer. So let's put that aside and say, say firing the, uh, the attorney general. Clearly he has the authority under the constitution to file the attorney general, fire the attorney general. But when done for corrupt purposes, under the analysis of Mueller, and this is simplified somewhat, that to to uh, to apply a criminal statute to that corrupt obstruction of justice, assuming for a minute what he, he was doing it in order to obstruct justice, let's just assume that for a minute, that that wouldn't violate separation of powers principles because the uh, this done for this corrupt intent is not protected essentially by his Article Two powers. Um, so. That analysis is the analysis that is applied in the report to discuss the application, application of the obstruction statutes to the president if they weren't barred by the OLC opinion from being indicted and also to provide the analysis for why it was okay to go forward and undertake the investigation of the president sort of for the same reasons. Um, the Mueller report doesn't get into whether those same constitutional event defenses would apply to impeachment proceedings. Um, and I haven't, frankly, spent the time to think that fully through myself. Um, but I will note the Mueller report does include an interesting footnote on page 172, or no, I'm not sure that is the right page, wrong page, on page 178, that does explain the differences between the impeachment power and the criminal law. They serve, you know, different interests. And, and uh, the special counsel says a possible remedy through impeachment for abuses of power would not substitute for potential criminal liability after a president leaves office. 
impeachment would remove a president from office, but would not address the underlying culpability of the conduct or serve the usual purposes of the criminal law. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of people have been sort of questioning why that footnote was there and whether that was some sort of signal um, by the special counsel of what he was hoping or thought should happen. I, I take it really more at face value that these are two separate um, types of proceedings, both with different goals and both serving different purposes. And he's just pointing that out in a footnote in his uh, discussion of the constitutional issues. Thank you for calling our attention to that interesting footnote. Josh, might Congress reach a different conclusion than you and the Attorney General on the question of whether the president uh, has a constitutional defense against being indicted for obstruction? I guess you, you, wearing your explainer hat, can you tell us how, how unsettled a theory is this? Not, neither the court nor the Justice Department has ruled on it before. So I, is it fair to say it's a, it's a novel theory that uh, people are disagreeing about? And, and might Congress make up its own mind? And should it address this constitutional defense in the course of forthcoming hearings? Oh, Jeff, I hope it does. Uh, far too many students of constitutional law see the Supreme Court as the only entity that can interpret the Constitution. And this is flatly false. Uh, all three branches take an oath to the Constitution, and they have an obligation to interpret it. So the question is this. Does an act with a corrupt intent, by definition, violate the president's duty of faithful execution? Uh, that's Mueller's argument. He didn't make the case. He had maybe one or two sentences explaining why that's the case with no argument. Uh, if you're going to be lodging an, an allegation of the sort against the president, I want pages upon pages of history and text and structure explaining why this is the case. Uh, Mueller just whiffed on it. And it's for that reason that I don't hold that aspect of the report in very high esteem. But Congress can make that decision. If Congress puts in an article of impeachment that we think an act with a corrupt intent is a violation of the president's faithful duty to execute, um, that's a judgment I will give a lot of respect to. Uh, members of the Senate sit as a court. It's a trial. And they find questions of law and questions of fact. Uh, the Chief Justice presides. And I think it will be very powerful for the Senate to actually make a decision on the meaning of the Take Care Clause. Hell, Jeff, I would rather the Senate make that decision than a court make the decision in, an, in a criminal prosecution. Uh, now, here's the fun kicker. I think the Supreme Court can go one way. And the second go the other way. They are not bound by each other. Uh, there's no obligation for the Senate to follow John Roberts' lead in the Take Care Clause. They can reach a different conclusion. I think that would be a beautiful testament to the power of the Constitution outside the courts. Mary, House Democrats face a tough political decision about whether or not to impeach, given the unlikelihood that the Senate will convict. But do you think it would be a useful exercise in public education for the House and or the Senate to hold hearings about the president's alleged uh, constitutional defenses, whether or not they, the members, think that uh, the president is immune from prosecution for obstructive acts. And uh, if you were scripting out uh, what the hearings in the House and Senate should look like, what questions should both houses address? Well, I, first I'll say I, I agree with, with Josh that the um, Congress is not bound by you know, the Supreme Court's interpretation about what defenses might apply to the criminal law. And when they're looking at, um, you know, possible grounds for impeachment, they can view things very differently. In terms of what, whether I think that Congress should convene hearings, I think they should. Um, but I don't know that I would say the hearings should be specifically on this constitutional question. I mean, I think they should first and, and, and again, they can use a lot of the work that Mueller's already done. I think they should um, at least, you know, kind of focus on the factual scenarios in in the Mueller report, others if they, if they think appropriate, and try to, you know, um, hear more and hear more in, in, in a public setting about the various elements of uh, the way they would view um, obstruction in, in the way that might support impeachment. And I don't think they should do this necessarily by drawing up articles right now, although they certainly could if they wished. I think they should come into this uh, doing their job as a, as a separate and independent branch of, gov of government, looking at 
you know, taking as a starting point what Mueller's done, asking what other additional questions they think they need to ask in order to better understand the president's conduct and whether they think that conduct is such that under their own interpretation of impeachable offenses and the, and the take care clause, as Josh recognized, whether that's something that um, they think they should go forward in terms of articles of impeachment on. At that point, of course, they would have to make some decisions about some of these constitutional issues. And, and again, I come back to agreement with Josh that they're not bound by anything. And of course, this case at this point is not going to get up to the Supreme Court for a decision on the criminal law anyway, uh, given the OLC opinion and given the, the, you know, where things stand with respect to Attorney General Barr's own legal conclusions. But um, so Congress would be making sort of these determinations um, in the first instance using its own constitutionally granted authorities. Josh, I hear Mary saying that perhaps the congressional hearings should follow a script, something like this podcast, namely first, the member should ask, uh, do the facts support obstruction? And, and second, should ask, uh, are there constitutional defenses or not? Do you agree with that script? Would it be useful to have those hearings? And, and if in the end, uh, the House concluded, uh, either for constitutional or political reasons, not to bring articles of impeachment, even though, uh, let's say, it did conclude that the facts supported uh, an obstruction claim and there were not valid constitutional defenses. Is there any other remedy, and would the rule of law be served or not by doing nothing? Oh, Jeff, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? What comes first, the facts or the Constitution? The Constitution comes first, of course. Uh, in fact, I think Mueller's Volume 2 was backwards. Uh, he put the constitutional analysis in the last 12 pages. He should have put it first. If the statute doesn't apply to the president, there's no sense discussing whether he violated the statute. Similarly, if the president had the power to do X and you can't impeach him for doing X, then why have a, why have a, a factual investigation? Now, uh, my love of the Constitution is, is, is uh, perhaps a bit too pure. So I think in all likelihood, if there is indeed Senate and congressional proceedings, they follow along the lines that Mary and you suggested. But as a legal matter, uh, you first challenge the indictment. You first challenge, is the legal charge valid before you actually have the trial? I think that's how it happened in most contexts. You first say, does the statute apply? Can you quash the indictment, so to speak? And then you go on to the facts of sufficiency and, and, and guilt beyond a reasonable doubt or whatever, whatever the standard is for the Senate. So, Mary, I, I've learned a tremendous amount from this discussion so far, but it is a, a technical, wonky, and rigorous discussion, even for the three of us, and, and we uh, study the Constitution uh, for a living. We're, we're lucky enough to do that. Is it, is, it, is it plausible to ask Congress to have a similar kind of discussion? And if in the end they, they, they did conclude that uh, even though they didn't agree with Josh and the Attorney General's constitutional defense, they, they didn't think that articles of impeachment were warranted, um, would the rule of law be served? Well, I think there is value to public hearings um, that, that, you know, are available to the entire American public to listen to, watch, make their own assessments uh, based on witness testimony and documents presented um, that allow them to sort of reach their own conclusions, even if Congress ultimately doesn't take action to impeach. And I mean, it's, you know, important to remember, this is a president who has stated his intention to run for re-election in, in just two years. And so, uh, uh, you know, it's important for the American people, the voters, to make some assessments about whether this is a president that they think is trustworthy and worthy of holding the title of the highest officer of the land. And um, these kind of, the, the actions in this report, not just volume two, by the way, but very much also volume one, which I know is sort of beyond the scope of today's podcast discussion, but whether that's the sort of president that they want to reelect. And, you know, I've urged people and other speaking I've done since this report came out to, and I think a lot of people look at 448 pages and think that's too daunting, but people should read the executive summaries of both part one and part two. That's not too, too heavy of a lift. And um, that will give them uh, some very valuable information that they, they can't get just, you know, from cable news. Um, and hopefully, you know, podcasts like this give people a little bit more in-depth analysis. But I guess to get back to your actual question, I, I think there's value in this um, 
even if Congress doesn't ultimately decide to drop articles of impeachment, or even if it does, if the Senate doesn't convict, I think, you know, it's a very political process. And, and there's all kinds of, you know, it's worth a whole nother podcast discussion about the pros and cons of that. But there's certainly value in our system to having, to having, you know, hearings and having this uh, out in the open for the public to make their own assessments. They don't have to, they don't have to take Mueller's word for it. There's certainly value in having uh, a discussion like this, and I'm so grateful to you and to our We the People listeners for taking the time to puzzle through these really hard factual and constitutional questions and make up your own mind. This is the time for closing arguments where each of you can appeal to our listeners both to describe what you think about the facts in the law and also give them some extra homework or reading so they can further educate uh, themselves, if you like. And Josh, the first one is to you. Uh, tell us why, although you think that uh, for an ordinary defendant, the facts alleged by the Mueller report might rise to the level of obstruction, you believe that the president of the United States is constitutionally immune for impeachment uh, for the exercise of his Article II responsibilities. Well, I think my claim is a bit more modest. I think immune is is, is too broad. In other words, I think it has to be on an as-applied basis. I think there might be some instances where the president's conduct could rise to the level of an impeachable offense. And the most obvious example is bribery or treason. Uh, those are specifically enumerated instances where uh, something taken in the president's official capacity could be uh, uh, subject to removal. I think once you go beyond bribery and treason, it gets a lot more fuzzy. And I think that the, uh, uh, the Senate would have to make specific constitutional findings about why a specific exercise is or is not supported by the take care clause. Um, again, I, I, I'm not saying that Mueller's wrong in all regards. I'll be very clear about that. I'm saying he didn't do his homework. He didn't do the work needed to get to the conclusion he drew. Um, I find the attorney general's memo, the unsolicited one, uh, 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 quite persuasive. And I think the other side now needs to rebut that and not simply say we're relying on Mueller. There has to be some analysis to, to, to move to the next stage. Mary, last word is to you, uh, having argued that the facts might support uh, an obstruction finding, especially for an ordinary defendant, maybe squarely tell us why you are unpersuaded by the attorney general's memo and why you believe that the president can indeed be indicted or impeached for obstructive conduct, even if he's carrying out his Article II responsibilities. Well, I guess I would um, call attention to a couple of things we haven't really focused on too much since uh, this is the last parting shot that people might uh, have gleaned from the attorney general's you know, memo from before he was the attorney general. In addition to making an argument that you know, because it's within the president's constitutional authority, for example, to fire the attorney general, it couldn't possibly be obstruction. Again, you know, we have discussed this a little bit. Uh, I think that there are certainly... Um, the, the Article Two authority does not protect him from corruptly taking actions, even if they are ordinarily within his executive authority. And some things like firing are also very different than other other types of obstructive acts that are revealed in the scenarios. But there's two other things we haven't focused a lot on that that um, Attorney General Barr had also mentioned in his original memo. And one is this suggestion that you can't obstruct, commit the crime of obstruction of justice if you did not actually commit the underlying crime that was being investigated. And that that's just completely contrary to law. And it makes it's there's good reason for that. And that's because, um, you know, a person could be investigated for something that they that they didn't do, but they so don't tr don't want to rely on the system and to actually, you know, propounding their own defenses and maybe talking to uh, the investigators and showing why they didn't commit the crime. Instead, they uh, attempt to obstruct justice illegally. And the obstruction, you know, the classic cover-up is worse than the crime um, uh, saying that has has been, you know, uh, rolled out many times in our history, you know, th that's really true. Now, it, it may be a relevant factor whether the underlying um, crime was committed as to whether, you know, when you are assessing someone's intent and whether the intent is corrupt, but it's certainly there's no free pass to obstruct justice uh, if you know you didn't commit the other underlying crime. And I would then, again, call listeners' attention to part one of the report, and even though Mr. Mueller concludes that there was not no crime of conspiracy um, 
with respect to the with the Russian government between the Russian government and Trump campaign officials or the president himself with respect to the Russian inter election interference efforts, there is a whole lot there that um, raises a lot of question about uh, about the president with respect to those efforts and its and its and his welcoming attitude and, and desirous attitude toward those the Russians continuing those efforts. And then finally, there is a point that um, A.G. Barr has made that uh, suggesting that because so many of the president's um, obstructive acts, if you will, I know he didn't call them that, but the acts that are the basis for the obstruction investigation were done very publicly, that that should also be a significant factor in, a, in assessing his corrupt intent. And while I won't deny that it's a factor, because normally we tend to think of people who want to engage in corrupt behavior doing it secretly, it's very much the modus operandi of this president to do things very, very publicly, uh, including things that, um, uh, you know, I, I think myself at least, and certainly many people would think are clearly improper, improper and sometimes illegal. And so in the case of this president and the way he engages in public statements, um, uh, excoriating other people, dangling pardons, etc., I'm not sure that there's much that can be gleaned from uh, the fact that he made that his acts are, are for the most part public. I'm not sure that tells us very much about his intent, other than he uh, thought that the entire investigation was a witch hunt and he wanted to make sure everyone listening to him uh, would agree with him. Thank you so much, Mary McCord and Josh Blackman, for a rigorous, nonpartisan, and truly illuminating discussion of obstruction of justice, the president, and the Constitution. Mary, Josh, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilburn and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ben Roebuck. Uh, the suggested homework of the week, read the Mueller report, dear We the People listeners. R- read the obstruction section, section two. And if after reading the elements, you conclude on the facts that the president was or was not guilty of obstruction and on the law that he does or doesn't have a constitutional defense, uh, write me and tell me why. This was a really tough complicated discussion this week, but deeply important. And it's your civic duty to reach a conclusion on your own. So if you take the time to do it, I would love to hear about it. Jay Rosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please also rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who may enjoy weekly homework and weekly constitutional education and debate. And remember always, when you wake and when you sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, engagement, and passion for lifelong learning of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.